This year, the Wellness Summit returns. 95% of the people you know out there want you to play it safe. They don't want you to jump over fire. You can get burned. They don't want you to live the life that you were born to live. You've got to remember that if you're cooking food, you want to love it. You don't want to be thinking, oh, I don't want to have to prepare another meal for my husband who doesn't appreciate it. I don't have to prepare another meal for my wife who just doesn't care. She just wants peanut butter on toast. Wake the heck up. You are where you're at right here, right now, because of all the choices you have made up to this point. Now, I didn't know what to do with being blown up. I didn't know what to do with that until the psychologist told me, you're going to have post-traumatic stress disorder, Karen. I went, okay, great. Now, at least I know what to do with that. Get ready, Melbourne. The summit is back. Well, other people are just walking through fire. I mean, look, look, look at it. And I'm on the phone going, yeah, and he's like, I mean, look, like this. And then he's lifted up his top and he's squeezing that, and I'm going, yeah, I can't even. We're doing masking. There's something there that you want that you haven't been doing for yourself. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. All info and tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode, we explore the three most commonly prescribed supplements and why they may not be the answer to your nutritional deficiencies or health and wellness goals. You will learn about Australia's number one pregnancy supplement and why the active ingredient can be hugely problematic for up to 50% of women. We discuss the significance of methylfolate and why preconception blood and genetic testing are important steps in determining the best prenatal and pregnancy supplementation for you. We explore vitamin D, reference ranges, supplement quality, dosages, the problems with the excessive use of slip, slop, slap in Australia, and why you either need to be consuming dietary sources of vitamin K2 or choosing a vitamin D plus K2 product. We then dive into iron and get to the root cause of the problem, addressing poorly absorbed forms of iron and the constipation myth. We teach you how to improve your nutrient absorption via gut health and explore why retesting is essential to ensure your protocol is achieving the desired outcomes. It's a very juicy topic today, team. 
So let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. So the purpose of today's podcast is to discuss commonly prescribed supplements and why they may not be the answer to your health goals or nutrition deficiencies. We've chosen three incredibly popular over-the-counter supplements, not to criticize the brands that make these, but more to highlight how much education is needed in this space and to ensure that if you do supplement, that you're spending your money wisely and that you're also supporting the use of these supplements with adequate lifestyle choices and also dietary choices. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really fascinating topic. And, you know, you and I talk about this a lot in the clinic with the conversations that we have with our clients when we're doing our blood test reviews and obviously prescribing supplement protocols. And it's a huge space. You know, we've got lots of different opinions. And I wanted to start with the conversation around prenatal supplements. Um, I'm particularly interested in this and wanted to talk to you more about Australia's number one pregnancy supplement. Yeah, definitely a good one to start with, probably because it will take up the bulk of the time in today's session. Uh, You know, you would arguably see this particular supplement sitting on the shelf of any woman in Australia who's even thinking or discussing the topic of getting pregnant. So it's a really important one for us to talk about because it's not necessarily the right prenatal supplement for everybody. So can you start with a little bit of a discussion, Steph, about the basics and why it it may not be the right one for women thinking or women who are thinking about becoming pregnant to start with? Yeah, for sure. So it's a very well-known product. And as you mentioned, um, it's definitely a huge part of the conversation. And when I was originally thinking about why this might be happening, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, I know that GPs recommend this product. It's definitely the first thing that happens in any kind of prenatal conversation. But this product has been around for so long that, you know, it's, it's going beyond that GP conversation. I'm sure, you know, there are many women that have also suggested this to their loved ones, or maybe it's a mother recommending it to their daughter. So it's, you know, it's iconic in this space. And a lot of, a lot of the issues that we see with this product are also to do with the time, how long it has been around for and how science um, and even the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods of Australia, how those, their regulations have changed. So first and foremost, though, it is, you know, defined as Australia's number one pregnancy supplement. It has a collection of ingredients because it is a multivitamin in nature, but it does have four active ingredients, which we know are very important for um, preconception. And they include folic acid, iodine, iron, and vitamin B3. Now, this conversation is absolutely not to say that you don't need a pregnancy multivitamin. Like we know that the the, the research around the right sort of nutrients um, are very important preconception, especially when we talk about folate, which I'll explain more on shortly. Um, We know it's very important for central nervous system development. So in the early stages of conception and definitely to prevent things like neural tube defects and um, birth defects. So I want to be really clear. I am a big fan of supporting your body with the right nutrients in that preconception and certainly during conception and breastfeeding and beyond. 
um, but I have a big issue with this particular product. Mm. I think that's important for us to set that scene for this um, for this entire discussion today. We're not saying that these supplements are not needed, but what we're what we're wanting to uh, educate the audience on is the fact that there is more to think about um, when it comes to supplementing, rather than just getting the the easy to access over the over the counter supplement. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, so when it comes to the, the prenatal supplements, um, obviously uh, folate is required, iodine, iron, B3, we absolutely need these in the preconception phase. Um, talk a bit about folate though and, and why perhaps the, the folic acid that we find in common prenatal supplements is not the most appropriate. Yeah, for sure. So folic acid is basically needed in Australia for anything to be called a prenatal supplement. So we know it's super important, as I mentioned, and by definition, a prenatal supplement has to include folate. The problem with folic acid that we see in many of these conventional supplements, and in particular the prenatal, is it is synthetically derived. So it is a very unnatural form of folate, like obviously the polar opposite of the folate that you get from your green leafy vegetables. Um, And it's actually got a very poor absorption rate. So folate is the first form and the body actually converts it through a number of steps where it then becomes folinic acid and then becomes a methyl folate, which is where it's actually bioavailable to be used for the purposes in this case prenatal support, central nervous system development, preventing spina bifida, and so on and so forth. So the poor absorption means that we're having to take higher amounts and this pregnancy supplement, um, their number one selling point is they compare their product to 15 other prenatal multivitamins and they have the highest levels of folic acid and that's their selling point. And I have a big problem with that because firstly, you know, you shouldn't need super high amounts of a synthetic form with a very low conversion rate. Like doesn't it make more sense to then take the bioavailable form, which is ready to go and therefore um, ready to be absorbed and utilised by the body? And the higher amounts don't translate into like better value per se because there's so much lost while it needs to be converted into that active form. Yeah. And it's just unfortunate that um, packaging usually will spruik these, these higher amounts and therefore that being the reason why their product is the best. It's not Mm -hmm. just seen in these prenatals, but it's seen in a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of packaging for, for supplements. Yeah, just another example of greenwashing that we see in the marketing, especially in the health and wellness space. But, I mean, the issue with that folate or that synthetic folic acid is, you know, it's huge in the pregnancy space. Now, this is a fairly big topic and one I will try and give justice to, but we have spoken about it on the show before, so I will definitely link up previous episodes and some articles that I've written many years ago now. But what we know is that there's actually up to 50% of the population that have a genetic defect 
which means they do not tolerate folic acid in that synthetic form. The gene is MTHFR, so you might have heard that acronym before. Once you see it, you'll never forget it because it looks like a swear word. But the, the acronym stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, and it's the key enzyme that converts folate into the active form. Up to 50% of the population have a defect where the gene function is slower, so they don't have the genetics to convert folate into the active form. So what happens? They're taking this pregnancy supplement or this prenatal multivitamin with huge amounts, like 800 micrograms of folic acid, that they can't convert into the active form. Now, so they're taking this supplement, but they can't use it. So it's not available in that methylated form to be able to create the central nervous system and prevent the neural tube defects and the birth defects. And it ends up building up in the body. And that can be really harmful. And, you know, this poor female, this mother or this potential mother has been told by the GP or, the, or her mother or the, her friends or her practitioner that this is the number one nutrient that she needs to support her preconception goals, but she can't utilise it and absorb it. I mean, I think that's so tragic because, unfortunately, the buildup of folate is toxic to the baby and some fairly new science is showing us that this is a cause of recurrent miscarriages in a female with the MTHFR defect. I mean, that is crazy that we're not having this conversation far and wide. Yeah. Um, It's crazy that this conversation is not necessarily being had between the GP and their patient in the clinic when when pregnancy is being talked about. Uh, You know, am I right in saying that GPs aren't talking to their their patients about genetic testing to see what's happening on this MTHFR gene? Whereas if GPs were comfortable having that conversation, some are, um, most aren't, if they were comfortable having that conversation, then the relevant testing could be done to ensure that the relevant and appropriate form of, um, of folate was being used or supplemented with. Yeah, for sure. And it's a little bit more sort of, I guess, complicated than that because as we know, your genes are just your genetic template. That's just your predisposition. At the moment, you know, with where the DNA science is at, What we don't have the precise ability to determine is if those genes are on or off. So even if you get a genetic test and you get a heterozygous, which is one copy, or homozygous, which is two copies, uh, polymorphism or gene defect, like that doesn't necessarily mean that your body is not methylating properly but it definitely for me is a huge red flag that we need to reassess what supplements you're taking and in that prenatal sense we'll know that folic acid is not going to be the best option for you Um, and we've got you know methylfolate available in Australia now and it has been available for the last couple of years and just to give a little bit of a comparison as to the difference you know I mentioned that folate needs to be converted to folinic acid and then to methylfolate. So taking methylfolate directly is that really bioavailable form of folate, which has greater metabolic activity, um, 
bypasses the bio, biochemical steps that synthetic folate needs and therefore makes this beautiful nutrient available for the growth of the fetus um, and beyond. Obviously, you know, we know it's for DNA repair and cell division and gene expression and healthy methylation, which um, is another area that I'm really passionate about and we've, we have spoken about on the show before. Mm-hmm. We have. So, so for those people listening who are, who are thinking about conceiving, perhaps for the first time, um, what are some signs that maybe they would have this defect on the MTHFR gene or a defect uh, and should perhaps inquire with their GP or work with somebody um, more holistically about their prenatal supplement plan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of, we can, we can talk about some sort of physical symptoms and that symptom picture conversation, but mm. in terms of like the order of events, just to, to kind of cover off the genetic testing conversation, because I don't want everyone to feel like they've got to kind of dive in the deep end. Um, firstly, it depends on obviously what your goals are. So definitely if you're in that preconception state, I think a full blood test is very important so that you've got a really good understanding of your current health status. Um, And we know that it depends on what GP you see as to how comprehensive that test is, i.e. how many tests they actually look at. I always create a list that does include homocysteine and histamine. And these are markers that we can use to start to make some really good correlations between how your body is currently methylating. Um, I do believe that if you're in that prenatal state, that getting your MTHFR genetic test is a really good idea. I think empowering yourself with the information, considering we know that the prevalence is up to 50% of the Australian population, it's one test that if your GP doesn't put through Medicare will cost you $50, I feel like it's really important to have that information to make sure you know whether you are suited to maybe just taking over-the-counter supplement, um, which I probably still wouldn't suggest, but that's another (laughs) segue, Mm -hmm. Um, or whether we do need to start to think about that, okay, well, you aren't going to tolerate folic acid very well at all. So we need to come up with another solution for your prenatal and obviously pregnancy support. Good. Thank you for highlighting those steps. I think that's a really important one for, for listeners um, and also for people to know that they, they, can, they can look to people outside of their GP for help in their pre-pregnancy planning if they don't want to, um, to go to these very common over-the-counter prenatal supplements. Yeah, it's an issue of quality as well. Like I just think the supplement industry has evolved so much in the last, God, two years since the TGA approved methylfolate, but over the last number of decades. So the most important thing is quality. You know, as we mentioned in the intro, we want you to spend your money wisely, but it's obviously not just about your financial health. It's about your health today and into the future. And I think supplements should be only prescribed but absolutely required following a food first approach and of the highest quality because then you aren't going to need 
huge amounts unnecessarily that just gets excreted in the urine or creates these problems that we see with the buildup of folic acid in someone with an MTHFR polymorphism. Mm, mm. One thing I will add to that in terms of testing, sorry, is you can actually do a, um, a red blood cell test. And I think this is a really interesting area because some people um, are, are, you know, obviously prescribe this prenatal or it might even be a different situation where you can do a red blood cell folate check. And if you've got really, really high blood levels of folate, especially when you're taking this particular prenatal, you are not processing man-made folate. So you can literally get that data from a blood test as well, which is very interesting, combined with homocysteine and histamine and obviously that genetic SNP, we can get a really good picture that's actually really quite simple to support in this situation, this prenatal and pregnancy environment. Um, We can create or look to pregnancy supplements that do contain methylfolate over folic acid. So it's not like we don't have an option for you. We just have an option that's suited to your genetic predisposition. Yep. Take home message, which is that there are options. It's just about working with the right practitioner to establish what those alternates are and what's going to be best for you. Yeah, for sure. So I think in terms of making the right steps like if you're in that um, preconception phase maybe even you know it's on the it's on the list of goals I don't even know if people set it as goals but like you're thinking about three months or six months as a as a prep time um, to get your body right to conceive naturally and to have a really healthy pregnancy and bubba that you know it is time to start looking at blood tests and a little bit of genetic testing to make sure you're armed with the right information. So when you do go to your doctor and the conversation of prenatals and pregnancy multivitamins uh, is occurring, as it will, um, that you know whether or not this is the right product for you. Nice. Is there anything else that you wanted to add on this particular topic, Steph, before we moved on to other commonly used supplements? It's a little bit controversial, but I have seen it in clinic a number of times. So I do want to just really gently talk about the topic of recurrent miscarriages. Mm-hmm. So it, it may not be you, at the listener, but it may be someone that you know or you know someone in your family. If you know anyone that has recurrent miscarriages, can you please share this episode with them or just softly start to talk to them about getting a little bit of genetic testing. So they just need to go and get their MTHFR gene test and we can have a look at what their genetic disposition is, uh, maybe look at some of the other markers I mentioned and start to explore whether they need to be taking a different prenatal support and, you know, getting a bit of a team of people around them that can help them conceive naturally. Yeah, really, really good point. The wonderful thing about podcasts they can so easily be shared and you don't have to be the one telling your friends or family members what to do but you can just you know give them the information so that they can um can use it in in the way that they want to so the next and very popular supplement that we want to talk about or that i'd like you to talk to us a little bit about is a d3 supplement 
Um, I want to start, I guess, right at the beginning, which is when when we should look to supplement with D3. Uh, you know, there is a vast difference between when a GP would talk to their patients about supplementing versus when a more holistic practitioner uh, like yourself or like me would talk to our patients about supplementing. So can you talk to us a bit about the reference ranges? Um, they may change a little bit depending on the country that you're in, but can you talk to us broadly about these D3 reference ranges and, and when it might be appropriate for somebody to start looking at supplementing? Keeping in mind that everybody is different, but but broadly speaking. Yeah, for sure. So I might start broadly with a conversation about reference ranges to set the context, because what we really need to remember is that reference ranges are the average from the entire population that visits a GP over decades. Now, think back for me, the last time you're at the GP, look around at the people that were also in the waiting room. Were they healthy or were they sick? So these reference ranges currently are quite skewed because we're collecting data from very sick to maybe someone just going in for a checkup to an athlete to someone that's really looking at optimizing their health and getting some blood tests, but you know, aren't actually in a state of disease. So we have these really broad reference ranges, which are then being used by GPs to essentially exclude disease, right? But not talk about optimal health. And that's the difference. Personally, I don't want to just be told that I don't have a disease. I want to talk about optimal health and obviously what I can do to create optimal health. So vitamin D in Australia is fascinating because the reference range is between 50 and 150 nanomoles per litre. So if you've got a, a vitamin D of 49, your doctor may pro- hopefully will start to talk about deficiency. But if you've got a vitamin D of 50, lucky. They, <laughs> but if you've got a vitamin D of 50, they won't. Now, how can that one, one nanomole per liter be mm. the be all and end all when it comes to optimal levels? And we know what vitamin D does for bone density and our metabolism. Um, you know, it's, it's huge from a metabolic health point of view. And we, we really need to think about – reference ranges are not good enough in Australia, and I know it, the situation They're is not. similar um, in you know, other countries, so the takeaways are going to be the same. What we need to think about is what these optimal levels are and you know, then what we need to do. So our optimal levels in the clinic at the Natural Nutritionist are 100 to 150, you know, we know we don't need greater than 150 for reasons that vitamin D can be toxic in excess, but 100 is, you know, it's 100% more than 50, right? So it's just crazy to think that so many people are not aware of their deficiencies because of the reference ranges and the conversations they're having um, with a more conventional doctor when their blood tests are being reviewed. Mm, yeah, definitely. And then that leads on to the conversation around how much is appropriate. Mm. Uh, You know, if you're sitting there at that 15 animals per litre, should you be taking the same amount in the form of a supplement as somebody who's up at 17 animals per litre on a daily basis? I mean, the answer is pretty obvious to me, right? No, but the problem with that really popular vitamin D3 supplement that we see at most GPs, I mean, it's, it's 
produced by Big Pharma, so they've obviously got the kickbacks from the prescription of this supplement. And it's also at all the generic um, chemists and very available. So don't get me wrong, I can see the benefits in the availability, but I have a big problem with the dosage. So, you know, a deficiency less than 50 um, or a severe deficiency less than 50 will not be corrected with the standard recommendations of one tablet or 1,000 international units per day. Like that's pretty clear to me. Um, There's also a big problem with the recommendation of one tablet per day, which is then being, you know, given to everybody regardless of their levels, as you say. So I think we really need to have a conversation around, you know, eventually I'd like to see the reference ranges broken down into, you know, basically deficiency, no deficiency, optimal or ideal or something like that. So I'll cross my fingers, but I won't hold my breath. Um, but I want the our listeners to think about, all right, so maybe you have been told your vitamin D levels are low and potentially you've been given a fairly poor quality um, big pharma version of D3, how do you know it's working? What do you do next? And that's what we've got to talk about retesting. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that a lot of people walk out of the GP's clinic, they get told they should should go and take a vitamin D supplement um, and they don't have that conversation with the patient about when to retest, how long it's safe to have this supplement for, and then you get people who are just you know, going, you know, daily for a year on end, having a vitamin D supplement. And that's not healthy either, as you just alluded to, because vitamin D in excess is toxic and dangerous. There's also the instance. So retesting is the answer. Yeah, retesting is definitely the answer. And we like to do sort of no, no longer than six months, but definitely, you know, three monthly if we're really trying to dial in and, and, and recorrect a deficiency or an, a, a level that's not optimal in our eyes. Um, but I also see the instance of when, when these poor quality, so poorly absorbed synthetic vitamins are being prescribed and there's no retest for years, this person gets their D3 back years later and it's the same, like nothing's changed. And I just think that's information that we need to share because if, you know, I don't want it to be just about cost, but supplements are a cost barrier for a lot of people. Like I see this every day in the clinic. So you need to know it's working for lots of reasons. One, to make sure you're absorbing the D3, which is a gut health conversation, and we'll get to that. Two, to make sure the dosage is right. You know, three, to make sure you're not taking things, you know, too long and Mm. getting to toxic levels because vitamin D is very seasonal. You know, we've all heard of the acronym SAD or Seasonal Affective Disorder. Melbourne has degrees of it, definitely. Europe by far. Um, very significant because we know that the majority of vitamin D actually comes from the sun, right? We need to be getting adequate levels of sun on bare skin with no sunscreen between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Now, I'm not talking about anything to do with getting burnt. I'm talking about five minutes probably if you've just started, especially if you've got um, pale skin, five minutes where you get sun exposure on bare skin, skin with no sunscreen and you'll definitely see improvements in your vitamin D3. But obviously, dependent on where you live, you can't do that all year round. And it's not super practical. Like, I don't want you to, like, I mean, I'm never going to advise someone to try and do that 
um, if they're in a corporate world where, you know, they can't really unclothe in their lunch break, right? I mean, you can definitely eat your lunch in the sun. I think that's lovely. Um, but we've got to be really clear on whether that's enough and the retesting will definitely tell us that. Mm. But interestingly, as you and I were talking about offline, um, you can't necessarily just assume that your vitamin D levels will fall in wintertime alone, especially mm. here in Australia where we are constantly getting that slip slot slap message. So even in summertime, a lot of people aren't getting natural exposure to the sun because they are covering their skin with sunscreen, T-shirts, hats, um, you know, rash vests, that sort of thing. So uh, for those people out there listening, as you said, we're not telling you to go and get sunburned and spend hours in the sun, but you know, even in the summertime, allow yourself five minutes where you, where you don't have your arms covered uh, to get that natural exposure to vitamin D. For sure. And I'm a big fan of sunscreen, provided we choose the right brands that are um, non-tox, obviously. But the strategy is probably go to the beach sit in the sun for five minutes, get your vitamin D and then put your sunscreen and hat on. You know, I, I think um, being aware of the sun and being sun smart is so very important, but we don't want to do that at the detriment of our vitamin D levels, which then affects our mood and our bone strength and our metabolism and so on and so forth. Yeah. The other thing I have a issue with vitamin D and its prescription in a, you know, a sort of more conventional environment is the lack of education that goes with that. You know, this particular product that we're talking about um, is a pure D3 and each capsule contains the um, 25 micrograms of the active ingredient, which is that 1000 IU that I mentioned. But we know that D is really needed to be taken or consumed with vitamin K2 for the best absorption. And K2 we know is great for, you know, bones and heart tissue and um, that integrity that we see um, becoming a problem with suboptimal levels of D. So, you know, not all vitamin Ds um, contain K2 and I don't think they need to, but we need to be talking about how to get vitamin K2 elsewhere if it's not in our D3 supplement. Mm, mm. So that's in food forms. Um, where are some of the most common sources of K2? Yeah, so we find it definitely in foods like organ meats, which is not everyone's favourite thing to hear. And I always love the screwed up faces that I see when I talk about organ meats for the first time with a client. Um, mm. But hard cheeses are good, free-range eggs, um, grass-fed meats, there's a soybean called natto, which is like a Japanese um, ingredient that's not super popular in Australia, so I definitely don't recommend that. But as you've probably noticed, the majority of those foods are found from animals and, of course, we recommend pasture-raised and grass-fed free-range um, for lots of reasons, including, you know, food quality, ethical and environmental decisions. So then what do vegans do? You know, this is an issue I have where um, vegans are being prescribed D3 without K2. So if you're a vegan, um, you definitely want to be looking for a product that has that combination of nutrients. We know your dietary sources of K2 are pretty limited um, and starting to look at, you know, how you can supplement that vegan diet is going to make it sustainable and definitely ensure you don't end up with nutritional deficiencies in a couple of years' time. Yeah, yeah. Lots of nutritional deficiencies to, um, to consider there on the, um, 
on the plant-based diet only, but that's a whole other conversation mm-hmm. for us to have, Steph. For sure. Um, are there any other particular um, groups that you think are at risk of vitamin D deficiency that we haven't necessarily talked about? So those that aren't getting a lot of exposure to the sun, um, those that aren't eating a lot of K2 naturally. Yeah, and I think the last sort of couple which might work together is definitely the elderly and those that don't strength train. We know that strength training is a beautiful stimulus for bone density. Um, that's really important to help offset the age-related decline. Um, and the elderly, you know, the reference ranges for the elderly or the susceptible should actually be 75 to 150. So we have seen some gentle shifts in Australia for certain subsections of the population. Um, so, you know, definitely um, age dependent. We want to see no less than 75, but again, I like the 100 to 150. Um, yeah. And bone density scans can be very important to have a look at if there is um, a sort of a fairly significant degree of decline that needs to be identified and addressed. Okay, great. Are you happy for us to move on to uh, our next topic of discussion or was there anything else that you wanted to note on on vitamin D supplementation? I'm definitely happy with the conversation. I just think to summarise, definitely start with your blood test. One thing I didn't add actually is um, that unfortunately D, vitamin D was removed from the Medicare rebate list. So if you just go in for your doctor and say, can I have an annual blood test review, um, make sure you request vitamin D because otherwise it will likely be left off the list. Um, You may or may not have an out-of-pocket expense for that. So have a good conversation with your doctor about whether you can get that through Medicare. But remember those reference ranges, right? We don't want to just assume that all is well if we sit inside an archaic and... um, reference range that has been derived from the sick population. So 100 to 150 nanomoles per litre in Australia is optimal. And obviously there's lifestyle things to think about as well as whether you are a candidate for supplement. Um, I wouldn't jump there first. I think it's, you know, food and lifestyle first. But um, to get yourself out of a hole, so to speak, if your levels are quite low, a short course of supplementation um, will do the world of good. You'll feel like a new person, that's for sure. That's the goal. So arguably one of the most common topics that we talk about with new clients that come into clinic, um, especially athletes and females, is that conversation around their iron levels. Um, often it's people that have had blood tests done who've got low iron levels that come and see us anyway because they do want to explore a little bit further um, or look at what can be causing those low iron levels, which I love. Um, But I do want to talk about this today because I think there's a lot that we can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective before getting to that point where we have to supplement, but often supplementation is needed. So let's talk about iron supplementation, um, when it might be needed and what forms of supplementation are the most appropriate. Yeah, for sure. I'm not a massive fan of iron supplementation. Like I think there's a problem that we are not addressing the root cause of the problem. So 100%. first and foremost, if you 
look at a blood test and you get your iron studies, you should have iron and ferritin, potentially some other markers. But for the point of this conversation, now we know the reference range for ferritin, which is how you store iron in the body, is um, from as low as 10 to 120 micrograms per litre when we know 100 is about optimal. So 10... (laughs) (laughs) is very different to 100 and we get lots of people with fatigue issues um you know there's Mm. implications to athletes in terms of their oxygen carrying capacity and performance and recovery go on yeah i was just going to say again to the listeners you know when you're looking at your own blood test results uh and looking at the is really key don't just listen to what the gp says look at the reference ranges and if you see that there's a massive reference range and you're down one end of it well then that should ring some i guess alarm bells or prompt you to to think a little bit more about the the discussion you've you've had with your gp and and get outside advice Mm. if um if they've skimmed the surface in terms of something like ferritin yeah i completely agree and the thing is and especially when it comes to ferritin like For most people outside of a pure plant-based diet, we have lots of options when it comes to dietary sources of iron. And if this, in in situations of deficiency, you know, you're either not eating enough and we can start with lifestyle choices around recommending, you know, slightly more serves of, you know, grass-fed beef or lamb. Um, But the other side of the equation is if you are eating a lot of that food, but we're still seeing low ferritin levels, then you have an absorption issue. So you have a gut issue that is not going to be solved by taking a synthetic vitamin, especially the iron that we see, again, prescribed by doctor. It's a doctors. It's a big pharma product. It's an active form of iron in the ferrous sulfate form. They add ascorbic acid, so vitamin C, to quote-unquote enhance absorption. But it's a cheap, nasty form of iron. Um, it's, it's poorly absorbed, so they need to put really, really high doses in it, similar to that folate conversation we had before. These high doses cause constipation, which further creates um, an absorption issue, leaky gut, inflammation, And it's this vicious cycle of just not solving the problem because you're not addressing the root cause. So iron deficiencies or low ferritin levels are largely caused by a a poor absorption, which you may or may not have heard the term leaky gut. I'm not one, you know, for that definition um, in its entirety, but the point is working on your absorption. So you can choose high-quality iron-rich foods, absorb and store, and then utilise the, the ferritin in that stored iron format. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to come back to this conversation around retesting. We, we, we talked about it when we were discussing vitamin D, but it's also really key when it comes to iron because if you have been told that you've got low iron levels or low ferritin levels and you've just dumped onto a, onto a supplement, but not thought about your gut health and uh, and therefore uh, the the quality of absorption or rate of absorption, it's really key that you are testing at least every three months so that you can see firstly whether that supplement has made a difference or whether you need to tackle the absorption issue. Yeah, absolutely. And then circling back around, like I get so many people, like let's say they come into the clinic and they've got really low ferritin. So if their ferritin's anywhere 
um, around that 10, 20 or 30, you know, they can definitely do a short course of supplement to start to feel better. And then obviously take time to address the gut and the absorption. And then ultimately my goal is to not have them on a supplement form. But a lot of people are super resistant to taking iron supplements because they've either tried it before and it's made them severely constipated or they've heard that conversation around quote unquote iron supplements make you constipated. And I'm here to say that it's absolutely not the case. It's about the quality of the product that you consume. So again, Big Pharma, they use the ferrous sulfate, which is well known as a common cause of constipation. Whereas products that we recommend are often a, a combination of iron for enhanced absorption, but we'll do a glycinate and a shellate. Um, and I, I think honestly, in my history, so I've been practicing for 10 years, I've had one person that thought they were constipated from the iron. Um, I can tell you it was another issue. It was definitely like fiber and, um, and gut health and prebiotics, which we'll talk about. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely not that all iron supplements caused constipation. Um, it's about the, the quality and also appreciating that, you know, you, you're really not going to absorb a synthetic vitamin amazingly anyway. We've got to come back to that root cause and start to look at down-regulating inflammation, so real food, just eat real food, looking further at the gut um, and getting your absorption up so you can really transform the way you feel because low ferritin is, you know, is... It's such a cause of fatigue and, and the flow and effects with mitochondrial health and you can feel pretty horrendous. Yeah. But I think also if you're if you're not absorbing iron and you've got chronically low iron levels, chronically low ferritin levels, it's really key to think about what is causing that because if 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 that could be the, the only sign or the only indicator that someone's got that there is a bigger problem that they need to address. Yeah, I think low ferritin levels can be a, a red flag for dysbiosis. Um, so it can be positive. It can allow you to start to think about, all right, I need to obviously go deeper. I need to go root cause. And we know that all disease starts in the gut. So too does all health. So I had this conversation on a podcast um, fairly recently that outside of financial limitations, I would love to actually start with gut testing because that's the root cause, right? We see all these nutritional deficiencies in a blood test. Um, we can't really fix them without addressing the gut. So hopefully soon when this conversation isn't as new um, and we have you know, more companies testing and access to cheaper uh, equipment, that stool testing will be more available to more people um, and we will be able to be root cause driven rather than just scratching the surface. Mm. It'd be a beautiful, beautiful time. <laughs> I was going to say it'd be a beautiful time when everybody goes to the GP and gets their comprehensive stool analysis done annually. But on Medicare, you know, imagine that. Yes. Yes, that would be even better. Y'all can dream. We can. So just in terms of gut health, we've obviously spoken about a lot on the show, but I, I don't want to... Um, you know, I don't want to neglect the basics. I think we often look for that magic pill. We're very um, quick fix driven in this space. Whereas the number one thing you can do for your gut health is to remove inflammatory triggers. So that's, you know, the obvious ones that you might've already identified um, yourself from food reactions or food triggers or, you know, bloating after certain foods or um, if you notice that you get a really runny nose after certain foods, like you've got to be the one that links the dots there. 
but you know, I'd love everyone to try, you know, gluten-free, removing poor quality dairy like cow's milk, making sure you're not having any of the refined seed oils like canola oil and cutting out the trans fats. Like you've got to go back to that real food template to control that inflammation to start to heal the gut, which you can then, you know, move on to more strategies around what you need to do to heal and seal the lining and create a better ecosystem in terms of the beneficial bacteria that make up 99% of you as a human host. <sighs> oh, it's a massive topic though, that's for sure. Yes, it really is. And we could, you know, we could definitely go into it in more detail, but like you said, it's a massive topic and probably too much to cover off the back of what we've already talked about today. Yeah, but definitely a really great place to have this conversation. And we, I'd love to hear from our listeners. Are there any supplements like they want to know about or, you know, do they want us to focus more on gut health? Like I'm really loving you know, recording these episodes to get the information out there, but we'd also love to hear from you. So definitely get in touch with us at The Natural Nutritionist um, if any, you know, topics that you want us to explore in future episodes. Yeah, please do. We were recently contacted um, with somebody who requested that we talk a little bit more about mental health and the role that diet has to play there so really looking forward to having that conversation with you in the not too distant future Steph yeah awesome it was great to chat about this topic and team thanks for tuning in please share this episode with your friends um, and let's change the world together with real food and education thank you so much for listening team make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast now before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day and here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.